Welcome to Season 6 of Purposeful Empathy, a show dedicated to amplifying the voices of people from across the globe who believe the world needs more empathy and are doing something about it. Today's episode is brought to you by Grand Huron International, an on-demand coaching provider for individuals and companies. Thanks for watching. Enjoy the show. So welcome to a new episode of Purposeful Empathy. Today I'm joined by Anita Sigetti, who has practiced law in Ontario for almost 30 years. She's a mental health law expert in both criminal justice and civil justice. She's a University of Toronto law grad, member of both the Ontario and Nunavut bars, and president of the Law and Mental Disorder Association. She's also co-authored A Guide to Mental Disorder Law in Canadian Criminal Justice, considered the definitive book on mental disorder law in Canadian criminal justice. As a married mom of two amazing teenagers, she's also a lipstick and coffee aficionado. We have that in common. I see we're wearing red. She's also a dog lover who is starting not to hate cats. Welcome to the show, Anita. Thank you so much, Anita. I'm really happy to be here. Yeah, it's nice to interview another Anita. Um, why? You know, I've, I read um, something that you published, and that's what drew your, that's how you were on my radar. And I loved what you had to say. And I said, we've never had a conversation with a practicing lawyer and the importance of empathy and law. So maybe I'll start with this, you know, straightforward question. Why is empathy important as a skill for lawyers? So my view on that is empathy is actually an integral component of our professionalism and our professional competence. You know, lawyers always think of you've got to know the law, you've got to study the legislation, the case law, and you have to have the right language. And it's, you know, an academic endeavor. But really what we do is about people, Um, particularly in criminal defense and in mental health law, which is where I focus and, and legal proceedings generally focus on human beings, on the person. Um, so you have to have interpersonal skills to be able to communicate with your client. But empathy is the secret ingredient to really uh, exceptional legal services and professional services the clients deserve. And the reason I say that is um, it is it is the individual's lawyer who uh, ultimately has to tell that person's story in court. A lot of lawyering is about storytelling. All of litigation is about storytelling. And if you don't truly understand your own client's story, you're not go- going to be able to put their arguments and their case and the, the strength of their perspective forward from their perspective. So it's about making sure that you understand that your client's situation as they are experiencing it and always making space, of course, for the fact that you're not actually in their situation. You need to be able to hear them when they tell you what their experience of being detained is like, what their experience of losing their autonomy is like, what their experience of being forcibly treated, for example, with psychiatric medications that are mind altering is like what it's like for them to be facing intersectional uh, barriers, what it's like to be a black man in police custody, in police confrontation. So um, to really listen, to really appreciate, to be able to then tell your client's story in the way that they experienced it, the way that they've communicated it to you, I think is a necessary skill. And if you don't do that, If you deal with your client situation without that, 
just, you know, clinically in a sterile fashion, trying to, you know, just look at the facts and the dates and the places that things occurred, um, then you're seeing your client's case through the eyes of the state, of the crown, of the hospital administration. You're seeing it without that human element, without that human reality and that humanity that I think is what we must um, internalize in order to be able to express it and give it voice. You know, not only was that a super cogent answer, but I'm really touched by it. I'm touched by the degree of humanity you bring to your work. I really sense that this really matters to you. Do you feel that law schools are doing a fair job of preparing lawyers for the empathic work they have? You know, uh, it's kind of a hard question for me to answer because I'm so old. I haven't been to law school since 1987. Well, since 1990. But, uh, you know, certainly when I was in law school, there there were no discussions about anything of the sort. You know, was, I went to the University of Toronto Law School. It was a conveyor belt feeding itself into Bay Street. The focus is on corporate securities law. I, you know, I do teach at the law schools now and there are more human uh, courses that people law, you, you do see, for example, mental health law is taught at more, most law schools, but representing clients is not necessarily taught in law schools at all. So it's still the Socratic method. You're still looking at common law. You're still looking at the development of jurisprudence. Um, you're still, you know, doing book study work in law school, unless you work in a clinic. And the the students who do work in a practicum or clinic kind of co-op environment at least have the experience of working with real clients. But I'm not aware of a single course that has a component or focus on purposeful empathy or fostering empathy. And I think actually that's a really important point to make. Uh, and it may be something that they need to explore and it may be something that you can point out to them. <laughs> so, well, thank you for answering that. Um, I, I wonder whether or not, I mean, with the, the, the uh, career that you've had and the, the focus of your expertise is so particular, if there's some like backstory to what brought you to this place or this, you know, meaningful work that you do? That's a good question. Thank you for that question. People often ask me that. Um, I fell into the work of mental health law completely fortuitously. A good friend of mine from law school was working as a patient advocate here at the Center for Addiction and Mental Health, which is Canada's largest psychiatric facility. And he really um, pushed me to come and do one of these hearings. He said, I would like them. And at the time I was doing work for the Hungarian community and I was doing real estate law and family law and making wills. And I was really very, very unhappy. So I, I tried one of these hearings. Um, and from the moment that I did my first consent and capacity board hearing featuring uh, a young woman who was detained uh, because she had been going down to her own children's school and during recess, she would watch her children from just beyond the fence. Now, she wasn't supposed to be there due to her mental health issues. The children were in care. She was not allowed to have unsupervised access with them. But just because she wanted to see her children and because she had a mental health issue, she was detained um, in hospital and for a long time. Um, and I, I just couldn't understand why this, this was happening just because of the mental health stuff. And I, I just found the, the power imbalance between the testifying psychiatrist and the tribunal and my client, um, you know, something that I wanted to get 
in the middle of because I just wanted to stand up to state authority and, and focus the professionals on me for a minute in order to be able to say, now you have to deal with me. Now this, you haven't been listening to this person at all. Now you're going to explain to me what you've done to her. And then we're going to sit down and someone else is going to look at your conduct. Um, it took me many, many years to make the link between why I was so suddenly drawn to the work. I had taken the only psychiatry and law course in um, law school. My mother was a physician. Um, she had a passion for psychiatry. She didn't practice, but she loved the practice area. I had you know, academically been interested in mental health and the law. But in terms of the work, it took me until relatively recently to make the connection. What drives me is actually that both my parents were Holocaust survivors. Mm -hmm. And I grew up, you know, with generational trauma around that, but also their stories of being detained, mm -hmm. um, detained in concentration camps, detained on trains on the way to concentration camps. And my mother had, you know, terrible claustrophobia. She couldn't be in a bathroom with a locked door or in an elevator. She walked up 20, 30 flights of stairs everywhere. And there's something, you know, I really believe in, in DNA being tattooed with generational trauma. There's something innate to me where I bristle against um, unlawful detention. And I, I really, you know, I'm sitting on that side of the room in every case pushing for some reason why someone has to be detained. And if it's not there, then reintroducing them to freedom, giving mm -hmm. them back their, their right. So that took me a long time to figure out why I was so drawn to it, but I was immediately uh, immersed in it. I have never looked back. Yeah, that's super compelling. I, I, I really appreciate why you're doing the work that you do with so much purpose. Um, you represent clients with serious mental health issues that are vulnerable, they have intersecting challenges, they face multiple barriers of discrimination, and they deserve confident representation, right? So how do you engage with your clients? What works? What doesn't work? Um, so it's interesting. I, I was involved with a, a training event most of today, earlier today, and we we're talking a lot about interacting with people in serious mental health crises. So when I meet my clients, they are detained. They're often really acutely unwell. They're at the height of any uh, emotional crises that they may be experiencing. And, you know, I've been doing this work for 30 years, just about be celebrating that anniversary at the end of September of this year. Uh, and I, I've represented probably at least 10,000 clients. I think I can count on one hand the number of times where I wasn't able to communicate effectively with the person in that crisis situation. Other than for maybe three or four occasions in my entire career out of 10,000 encounters, um, I, I've never had a problem establishing that contact. And, and, you know, I'm often asked, you know, what's the, what's the trick? What's the secret to all that? And, and I, I say to people, sometimes this is going to be a very short response because uh, on the one hand, <clears throat> it's simply about recognizing uh, the shared humanity uh, between us, you know, and we're all human beings. There's a level on which you can connect when you come into the room with just that and then listen to see what's happening. Um, what what I think doesn't work and where these interactions go off the rails for other people sometimes um, 
is an ignorance of what the person who has a serious mental health issue has suffered in their life. And uh, that's um, systemic discrimination, sometimes referred to stigma, you know, structural stigma. I think there's a difference there, but um, systemic discrimination against persons with serious mental health issues fall into three categories. One, dangerousness. So if you walk into a room with someone who's in a serious mental health crisis and you're telegraphing that you're afraid of them because you're presuming that they are dangerous because they are mentally unwell in that moment, they feel that, they sense that um, it destroys any possibility of rapport or communication. The second thing is a very common misconception um, is that cognitive impairment is linked to serious mental illness. So people mm -hmm. think um, the person's cognitively impaired, they don't understand, they're not smart, they're not articulate. There's no connection connection there. So if you approach these interactions, talking down to a person, presuming they're not able to understand you, they've had that their whole life, they don't want to deal with you. And finally, and I think the most damaging is society, society's paternalism towards people with serious mental health issues, by which I mean this idea that they cannot make decisions for themselves, that they cannot assert their autonomy, or they or any decision they make would not be in their best interest. So it's best that we decide for them. They've had a lifetime of other people taking decisional control away from them. So if a lawyer walks in to meet a client and says, look, I just think they want you to take your medication. So you should just take your medication. I don't understand what the problem is. That kind of thing is a non-starter. So I don't do any of that. I don't even bother formulating an opinion as to what I think should be happening with the person. Uh, I don't, my opinion doesn't matter. So I don't I even ever get to the stage of thinking, boy, this person should really just take some medication or they're better off in a hospital right now. Uh, my opinion doesn't matter. I'm there to hear what they need, what they want, and to achieve that for them. And then I just, you know, talk to them like any other person, any other client, provide information, listen to their story. How did they get there? What can I do to help? What do they want? And explain what I can do to help. Honestly, um, not sugarcoating it. Um, tell them realistically, here's what I can do. Here's what I can't do. What do you want me to do? It never fails to, to work. Yeah, because it shows respect. And as you said, that thread of we share a common humanity, you're not being paternalistic, you're not pitying them, you're, you, you know, you recognize that they have agency. Um, I imagine that you have spent your career kind of in a David versus Goliath kind of, you know, you're talking about superstructures, right? Like big, powerful government or whatever authority, and you're representing somebody who may, who probably doesn't have the same degree of power by a long shot how have you maintained optimism even like a sense of humor you know <laughs> um optimism yeah no that's I mean optimism is an interesting way of putting it sense of humor there's no shortage of sense of humor at my firm uh, I'm very lucky I I surround myself by uh, with associates and students who are able to appreciate uh my sense of humor and we uh, we laugh a lot. We're, we're not laughing at our clients or their situation, heaven forbid, making light of what they suffer. 
but there's room to laugh and it, it is important to laugh uh, because things otherwise overwhelm and overcome you and can get pretty dark. Uh, in terms of optimism, you know, um, it's interesting. Every time I pick up a case file, a new file, even if I just review a file and I think it's hopeless, I don't have a, a single legal argument to stand on. It's that purposeful empathy um, and it's that investment in the human being who's my client. It's getting to know that client. It's listening to that client. Um, it's trying to see from their perspective what they're experiencing uh, that results predictably and in every case by the time I'm at the stage of making closing submissions to a jury or to a tribunal or to a decision maker, I am 100% convinced that my client is right, they need to be set free, they need to, you know, have their decisional autonomy returned to them, uh, whatever, whatever it is. Um, and that's a kind of optimism, in a way, because it tells me that I still care after 30 years, there's never been a day that I've shown up in court, and said, Oh, well, just this time, I will throw in the towel, or um, you know, it's an off day, so who cares? Um, so the fact that I still care and I really believe in, in my case and in the client's case um, leads me to believe that I'm in the right place and I'm, I'm doing the work the right way. I think if I ever stopped feeling that, if I started to feel, you know, burnt out or overcome um, or feeling hopeless or pessimistic to a degree, where I didn't have the, the will to uh, fight against state power for that client, I think I would pack it in. Mm -hmm. um, I think that uh, COVID has impacted our mental health on a collective level in ways that we really don't haven't grappled with yet. I wonder if you could say something about that and also, you know, how, how has it impacted lawyers? So I get, yeah, I can answer that in two ways. Reflecting on the situation of clients with serious mental health issues, the pandemic has been devastating for them in, in a number of ways. For those who um, are living in the community, not being able to access services in person, not being able to have in-person connections um, is very difficult for people who have serious mental illness, who have visual disturbances, auditory disturbances, who have a paranoia or fear of being recorded, having to check in with your doctor on, on telehealth and WebEx and Zoom uh, is very difficult. The, you know, the cognitive exhaustion of focusing on a screen for any of us is a lot. So for people with other stuff going on in their brain and hearing other voices that aren't there, seeing other things, it, all of this technology that's making it easier for some of us to do our work is, is difficult for them and missing the in-person connections, missing group therapy in person, um, missing being with, um, you know, their friends in social group settings and therapeutic settings and recreational settings um, has been very, very difficult. Lack of services in person is crushing. For people inside the hospital, COVID has had an absolutely devastating effect because their privileges have largely been cut off. So for most of the last two years, they've not been able to enter the community. They maybe haven't been able to comply with masking requirements. 
um, or other requirements. Um, and they've, they've simply been locked down into the hospital, onto the ward, sometimes into their room because of COVID restrictions for long periods of time. COVID also took hold in the institutions as it did in jails causing illness. Um, so mental health, uh, you know, for the clients has been exacerbated for sure. For, for the lawyers, um, legal professionals, lawyers, criminal defense lawyers, and mental health justice lawyers already um, have been burdened with a disproportionate level of serious mental health issues and substance use issues. There's a lot of um, that in the profession. It's very difficult for criminal lawyers, mental health lawyers, with large legal aid practices to sustain our businesses at the best of times. And the work itself is frequently traumatizing and difficult. So there was a, a pre-COVID level of very, very high levels of mental health and substance issues in the bar. And COVID has made that a thousand times worse because similar to our clients, we lack the social interaction that we would have in courthouses. One of the only things that kept us, you know, civil with each other in the bar is we could do battle against each other in the courtroom. But by and large, we're all friends when that was over because that was work. We would leave the courtroom, turn to the crown attorney when you're defense and say, how are the kids? What's happening? Go grab a beer. It's a very collegial bar. None of that is available to us now that we're conducting all of our hearings and trials on Zoom. Um, and just the pressures of trying to keep your business going with young children at home, the lockdowns, um, and trying to represent clients who are so overburdened as well, uh, has really exacerbated mental health and depression, anxiety, and substance use in the bar. And we're seeing the manifestations of that in, uh, unfortunately, behaviors that are um, not normally seen in the bar. We are normally you know, required and behave in a particularly civilized fashion. I have seen in the last two years, uh, use of profanity, use of inflammatory language, short tempers, unreasonable positions taken, disengagement. You know, with the use of Zoom and electronic technology, if you don't like what someone's saying, you hang up. <laughs> um, sh you know, sh very short fuses, you know, abusive conduct. And unfortunately, you know, internet, um, social media use that's inappropriate, uh, stalking, bullying, harassment. Um, and I think the profession's really, really in trouble. And a lot of lawyers are incredibly overwhelmed. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that seems like a lot. Today's episode was brought to you by Grand Huron International, an on-demand coaching provider for individuals and companies. I wonder, the work that you do um, is so, so deep. Um, this is maybe like a philosophical, metaphysical, spiritual question. I don't know. Um, how has it changed your um, feelings about life, people, um, you know, how, how, how's that change your philosophy of how you live your life and how you relate to people you love? And I don't wonder, how's it changed you? Um, yeah, I don't know. I, I, that's a really good question. I don't know how much, uh, it's changed me. I think 
uh, I think I've always, to some degree, I've always been this person. And the, I think the person that I am is just, uh, this was brought home to me when my children were very small and in fact, new babies and then toddlers, uh, is I, I actually don't know how to talk to anyone other than how I would talk to, to anyone and everyone. And I was, we have old home movies where you see me talking to my newborn infants and toddlers as if they were full grown adults making jokes. And when I'm alone with them, it's ridiculous. Um, but, you know, I think that's actually um, been a bit of a leg up with me uh, for me dealing with my clients is that I just treat everyone pretty much the same. Um, but, but um, I think it's, I think working with the clients has, uh, has been life affirming because uh, there is such a heavy burden on my clients and what they endure and the loss of liberty and poverty and, you know, always being under other people's control and the humanity that they show and the kindness that they show me and the thoughtfulness that comes back from them, their resiliency, uh, even during COVID, you know, I have clients who, when they're in seclusion and get their one phone call to me that day of seclusion, we'll start that conversation by saying, how are you? Are you okay? Sometimes they'll say to me, are you sure you're okay? You sound different. You sound stressed. You're tired. You know, you need more rest. I can hear it in your voice. Um, some of them know about my family. They want to know how old are the kids? Where are they now? I haven't seen them in years. And just that, you know, their empathy that they retain and their humanity that they retain, um, you know, gives me hope for, for humankind and for uh, the future. And we can learn a lot from, um, from people who are so vulnerable and in um, the way that they retain and do not lose their own ability to be empathic and to stay human. Hmm. So do you have um, any suggestions on how we can foster empathy in others, uh, including children? <laughs> um, so I just, I remember when I was, um, I was a new mom, I was, well, new mom, I was an old new mom. So I, you know, was, I think 35 or 36 when I had my first child. And uh, I refused to admit to almost turning 40 when I had my second child. So you know, they write down gestational age or whatever. And they are geriatric. Yeah. <laughs> but I just insisted they cross off 40 and put down 39, like in case my son ever looked to see how old I was when, <laughs> when he was born. Um, but I remember when I was reading all these books about parenting, I was listening to advice and uh, very little sunken at the time. But I, I do remember hearing, uh, you know, your child will learn to read. They will learn to you know, add and subtract in school. Their school teachers will teach them what they need to know. And I, the only thing that stuck with me was, you know, in the young ages before five, compassion, empathy, those are the, the things that you need to instill with them in them then. And don't worry about the academic stuff because a lot of parents get caught up in, you know, when do you reach these specific milestones? Yeah. And, and that really, that made a big impression on me and I guess I was kind of focused on that when they were little. And I, at some point, I remember my daughter was maybe, 
maybe two and a half. She was barely able to talk. But I realized I might have overshot it because all of a sudden I heard her saying to me, mommy, look at that car. And I said, oh, car. And I looked at this car and she said, it's so poor. I said, why is that car so poor? I couldn't, I wasn't computing and it, the car was just parked alone. Like it was, there was no cars parked beside it, behind it uh, or in front of it. And my daughter, you know, felt empathy, uh, felt, you know, I guess, sorry for the car being so lonely. So she said, the car's so poor, it's alone. It didn't have any, any car friends around it. And I thought, okay, I think we can cross off. Like <laughs> we managed that. Um, but uh, the one thing I will also say is both my children from newborns after a few months that we got to stay home with them, went to nursery school or kindergarten or whatever you call it now, um, daycare, early childhood daycare within the Center for Addiction and Mental Health. So within CAMH, there was a specialized daycare um, and we got them in there because I did a lot of work with the clients there, which meant that they were surrounded by people in very serious mental health crises, very um, sort of overtly experiencing symptoms of serious mental health issues, walking in the hallways, in the corridors, every time they went out for recess or they went out into the, the park on the grounds, um, they were surrounded by people who were uh, behaving overtly differently. Um, and, uh, and they learned never to, be afraid that there was nothing to be concerned about. Um, and I think all of that led them to both being very empathic and, um, you know, very full human beings. Mm, the lovely story about your daughters. And I especially love that little lonely, sad car. <laughs> that car is so poor, mommy. That car is so poor. Out of the mouth of babes. I had mine when I was 42, so I can totally hear you on the whole uh, older mom. Um, so in your work, um, I imagine it can't always be a good day. And I'm sure that even though you, you said that your clients are empathic and it surprises you and it gives you a lot of faith in humanity because of that, it, it, it can't always be smooth sailing. So I wonder how you practice self-empathy or how people can practice self-empathy um, with somebody who could be hurtful or toxic. Yeah. Um, you know, funny enough, I recently had this experience, not from clients, but from colleagues, uh, mm. but it, it had, has happened with, uh, with clients occasionally. Again, I can sort of count on, you know, one hand, the number of times that I've had to, you know, fire a client, which is terminate a solicitor-client relationship. I, I have some clients going back to the beginning of my career. So I have some clients I've had for 25 or more years uh, with whom I'll have contact professionally several times a year, once a year, once every few years. Um, but on a few occasions, uh, I have had to terminate the solicitor-client relationship. And I think when it, when it comes to that, it's, it's, healthy for both parties. Uh, I think at that point, when I feel like I can no longer tolerate the, the impact of the relationship on me and my mental health, I can no longer do a competent or professional job for this client. Mm -hmm. uh, I just can't because the, the, you know, the resentment and the, and, and the pressure that I feel and the need that I have to, to keep them away and to build 
you know, space and distance will overtake my ability to fully immerse myself in their case and do my best for them. So I think boundary setting at some point when a relationship does turn toxic, and as I say, I've recently had this with colleagues, um, which is extremely unfortunate because it came on the heels of a very warm and very supportive longstanding relationship. But I think COVID stressors and whatever else, at some point when, when the relationship, any relationship is toxic, when it becomes abusive, when it's about diminishing you uh, and it's impacting your sense of self-worth, your sense of mental health if you're losing sleep, if you're internalizing uh, and, and fixating and playing this stuff, you know, over your head, if you're, if you're at the point where you're fearful of contact, phone contact or direct contact, if you dread opening an email, if your blood pressure is going up, your heart rate is going up because you, you can't deal with what's happening, then I think the kindest thing you can do for yourself and the way that you practice empathy and look out for yourself is to draw that boundary and enforce it. And that's not anything to be ashamed about. I used to feel that this was a failure somehow that I couldn't make it work. And this was my fault. Um, but it's something that you owe yourself and you owe the other party as well. Because whatever's happening is not healthy. It's not productive and the outcome will not be good. Yeah. Um, so I think drawing boundaries is an aspect of, of empathy. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, Anita, I have loved this conversation and you've been very generous with your time. I have one more question and I always ask it of my guests at the end of our call. If you can think to a time when you were on the receiving end of empathy or purposeful empathy and what that meant for you. This is a really, really great question. And, and I hope I get it right. <laughs> uh, you know, lawyers, we always want to win. So I want to win the, the story. Um, and I don't know really if this is actually empathy so much as, you know, random act of kindness or, or what. But I think, I think I have my reasons for believing that this falls properly into empathy. It happened a super long time ago, but it's never left me. I was a new lawyer. It was around 1994. I went down to the Law Society to make a motion to argue against unpaid articles. My mother had been a physician in Hungary. And when we came to this country, she was forced to work for two years uh, without any pay to requalify. So she worked 72 hour shifts, same as every other intern. But because she was a foreign trained doctor, uh, there was a policy that she would not get paid at all. So she, we, our family spent two years with her not earning any income, although she was working you know, really, really hard. And I thought that that was wrong. And uh, interestingly enough, we're having this debate now about articling in the legal profession. But in 1994, I wanted to bring a motion. I was a new lawyer. I wanted to bring a motion at the Law Society of uh, Upper Canada, then now called Law Society of Ontario, against um, allowing unpaid articles because of this thing that happened in my family with my mom. Anyway, I was down there and I met a bunch of people and I met this uh, lawyer. Um, an older woman lawyer, I met her um, and uh, we had a nice connection. And um, I guess I was very poor and I didn't quite realize how I looked when I showed up uh, at the Law Society or that I wasn't particularly put together. I didn't have any money. I just started out, I, I was making no money. And I, I guess I was carrying my papers to make my motion in like a Loblaws bag, like a plastic shopping bag. And 
I never really gave it a lot of thought because I just didn't have anything else to put it into. And this must have been obvious to people, but I wasn't thinking. Um, and then the next day, I had a little tiny office at King of Bathurst I rented. And the next day, this big, beautiful brown leather litigation bag showed up in my office with just a note with the lawyer's name. Um, and I still have it, <laughs> you know, almost 30 years later, I have the bag. Um, and what struck me about that and why it was so moving for me is um, it's not as if there was a conversation about it. It's not as if this lawyer said to me, why are you running around with a plastic bag with your notes to present this motion in? It's not like she asked me if I had a problem, you know, with money. It's not like she offered me money. And it's not like she asked me, do you want uh, a litigation bag or do you want me to buy one? And she, the note said this, I had another one that I don't use. This is a spare bag that I have. And whether that was true or not, I don't know, may have been. But I guess what I thought was so, you know, emotionally intelligent of her and so empathic of my situation is she didn't make me articulate any of that. She saw what she saw. She, you know, obviously put it together. They didn't have the money um, to, you know, present as a lawyer in a situation where it probably would have been very important and helpful to actually, if I thought about it, you know, in retrospect. And she thought that there was something she could do to help with no fanfare and, you know, not seeking any kind of credit. I've been talking about this ever since, every chance I get. So if she was looking to stay, uh, under the radar, it didn't work because it, it really has stayed with me. And it's also really uh, encouraged me to paint forward in similar ways and be um, observant and thoughtful and figure out where I can help uh, and just do it without, without explaining it or seeking an explanation or, you know, just do something for someone that's going to improve their lives in ways that they're just not in a position in that moment to do. I love that story. You won your story. I moved <laughs> as this question typically gets me across the finish line. Um, we haven't met before this moment. And I no. just want to let you know that um, I, I feel so much soul depth mm -hmm. from you. And I just want to uh, thank you so much for sharing um, your thoughts about empathy, how how it's important to your profession and especially within the, the space of law that you navigate. Um, I wish you all the best. Well, I think your, you. your clients are very lucky to have you and I wish thank there was you, more Nina. of you all over. So uh, thank this, you for the time. This was a wonderful conversation. I'm just so honored and privileged and grateful to you for giving me this opportunity. And uh, I look forward to following your work and reading your book and, um, staying in touch as I'm sure our paths will cross over time. Hope so too. Thank you all to our viewers and, and listeners. See you next week at Purpose of What if you had access to your own council of coaches to help you break free from your thinking clutter, make that important decision, and liberate you from whatever's holding you back? At Grand Huron International, you get to choose the coach of your choice anytime from anywhere. Visit GrandHuronInternational.com and harness the power of on-demand coaching today.